Hello, I am Syl Annan, and I welcome you to the Queen Trail podcast. Queen Trail, a woman who emphasizes a life of passion expressed via personal style, leisurely pastimes, charm, and a cultivation of life's pleasures. Welcome. Hey everyone, I hope you've had a great week since the last time that we got together. Mine's been pretty good. I've done a couple of things this week. One of them was I got this nice big filet of salmon at the store and I decided to grill it. I have a charcoal grill. So I get the briquettes that are supposed to be quick light. And most of the time they don't light by themselves. I don't know how people get their grill started really easily. And I've decided that this old caveman fire starter gene that some people seem to have just did not make it all the way through the evolutionary line to me. (laughs) Because I cannot start a fire and it's always been like this huge problem. And I just remember trying to get fire started to grill whatever I was going to grill for dinner with the kids. And I would start when it was daylight. And four or five hours later, I was still trying to figure out how to light the damn grill. I mean, honestly, there was one time where I think I started at five o'clock and I didn't have dinner on the table until 1030. It was ridiculous. I did make snack plates in between. So it wasn't like everybody starved. But oh my God, all of the newspapers were burnt up. And I remember feeling this panic where it's like, we don't have any more envelopes. We don't have any more newspapers. You guys go and find something that I can burn. (laughs) It was so bad. Eventually, I would get them started. And then sometimes the fires were so weak that they weren't cooking the food thoroughly. And then Sophie and I sat down to start watching the series alone, which is where they take like 10 expert survivalists and they spread them out in this dense wilderness in 10 different areas. And they're basically separated by like super thick forest or impenetrable terrain, enough to basically be there alone. And they're each allowed to take 10 survival items with them. And then they give them all of these cameras and everything so that they're filming everything that they do. And they're basically there alone, except for when there's like medical checks. And sometimes they're helicoptered in, sometimes they're boated in. I mean, it's like very, very survivalist type of atmosphere. And the one thing that I started noticing that everybody took with them were fire sticks or ferro rods. And you would just watch them go and start a fire. They'd go out and they'd chop up their wood and they'd get kindling and they'd make a little nest, a little bundle of kindling, and then they'd pull out their ferro rod and start scraping that ferro rod and creating sparks. And the next thing you knew, there was smoke and then there was fire. And then they'd pick up this little bundle, like almost every single one of them did this just very theatrically pick up this little bundle and put it right in front of the camera and there would be flames coming off of their fingertips and they would gingerly walk it over to where they had their 
logs and everything else set up for that night's fire and set it in the middle, blow on it a little bit, adjust some of those logs. And before you knew it, it was like a, a fucking raging bonfire. And I was like, what? They make this? I'm buying one right now. And so I did. And I just decided that this was the magical tool that had been missing from my fire starting kit all of these years. And it was just going to be the beginning of wonderful grilled dinners. Um, So I got it. I remember I was really excited. It's basically a metallic material that's man-made and it produces sparks in excess of 3000 degrees Fahrenheit when it's scraped with a rough surface or a sharp edge. Its extended name is Ferrocerium, F-E-R-R-O-C-E-R-I-U-M, Ferrocerium Rod. So you can imagine how excited I was. I mean, if I'm producing sparks in excess of 3000 degrees Fahrenheit, I'm going to be able to start a fire, right? So grill day rolls around. We've got, I don't remember what it was, but I know that I probably went all out and had something really amazing ready to grill. And I had my magical ferro rod and the flint striker that came with it. And I walked out there with absolute confidence. I was going to finally get dinner on the table before it got dark. So Sophie and I went out there and we collected all kinds of kindling to put in and around the briquettes. We had dried twigs from the fig tree. We had dried rosemary plants. And there was a bunch of very long grasses that I had cut short and I hadn't gotten rid of them. And those were super dry. So we took a lot of that, created a little ball of kindling like we saw on a loan. And I felt so survivalist. I kind of felt a little bit like Liz Sherman from Hellboy that can just start fires like that. I mean, that was like as close as I was ever going to get to her, right? And I start striking and striking and nothing is happening. Like no sparks are coming off of this pharaoh rod. And... After a while, I just was crestfallen. I couldn't believe that I got the one non-working ferro rod out of the bunch that they were sending out. Well, they are covered in a coating and you have to wear that coating off. And that is for safety purposes so that, you know, it doesn't spark a 3000 plus degree Fahrenheit during transport and burn everything up. So once I figured that out, I got rid of as much of that coating as I could with just by striking it. It's kind of like the coating that's on lotto tickets, you know, the scratchers, you go and you scratch that off so that it reveals what's underneath. It was like that sort of a procedure. So I got some of that off and then I started seeing some sparks coming off. And by this time, the wind had kicked up. It was darker, but I had regained my confidence and I was going to start my fire and we were going to have dinner shortly. So I start striking again. And here's the thing. Grass freaking doesn't burn. 
I mean, like, it's got to be super hot. And it makes me wonder with these wildfires, especially here in California. Well, I mean, all over the country, but here we are guaranteed to have wildfires and it's devastating. How hot are those fires getting? Are they over 3000 degrees? Also, continuous contact, right? So a spark is just a spark, it's going to fly into what you're aiming it at, but it goes out super fast. So I know that those are two elements that were not there. um, But material is really important. And the grass did not catch fire. And now it's getting dark and we can't light this. I'm going to have to go find that ferro stick because that was the last time that I even bothered with the ferro stick I or the ferro rod. I need to figure out how to use it. So that's going to be on my bucket list of things to learn. I think it's probably a good skill to have, especially if uh, the zombie apocalypse shows up and you're out in the middle of some forest and trying to cook your dinner. So (laughs) I'm going to learn how to use that. Um, But what I ended up doing is I got so frustrated. And just imagine it has been decades that I have been trying to light fires and unable to do it. I mean, I really think back a lot on what our predecessors, what the early hominids did. I mean, evolutionarily speaking, we have, as a species have been around for 6 million years. And it took 5 million of those to figure out how to make fire. And I know that we're going back to getting to a place where our daily routine did not involve running away from danger or running after food so that we could actually have some space to figure out how to make fire. But that was only a million years ago. So fire is 5 million years in the making. And I need to remind myself of that because it's that hard to create fire. I mean, of course, there was also the intelligence evolutionary intelligence, the the building on uh, what the early humans understood through all of those millions of years to be able to start a fire. But I mean, it took us 5 million years to figure it out. So I'm just going to go with that and not make myself feel bad for not being able to start a fire. But actually, since I was talking about alone earlier, there are a couple of episodes in there where one of the survivalists lost or forgot or somehow became separated from their pharaoh rod. And that alone resulted in them having to pull the plug on being able to continue with the challenge because they could not build fire in any other way. And I know that I'm using briquettes that are supposed to light, but maybe the briquette companies are responsible for that. It's just really hard to start fire. And because these are experienced survivalists that are going into these situations, they also have a lot of experience with the ferro rod. So um, like I said, definitely going to practice that. And honestly, I should be a whole lot better, much more knowledgeable about how to start a fire than I am because 
I'm a former Cub Scout den leader. But to my memory, I do not recall ever teaching the boys how to start a fire. And the funny thing is, I didn't go into Cub Scouting wanting to be a leader. It's kind of the story of my life. Somebody goes, hey, there's a niche available and you can do it. So want to try? So (laughs) I should have learned how to say no a whole lot sooner, but this was not a bad experience at all. Um, What happened is we were celebrating one of the ceremonies. I don't recall which one it is. Cameron was a Cub Scout during the 75th anniversary of Boy Scouting. It might have been that one. And the leader at the time went onto the stage and gave a really nice speech. And then at the end said, all right, well, I'm done. I won't be back. This is the end. See you all later. Thanks for the good times. And all the parents and everybody was just in shock. We're all looking at each other like, what the heck just happened? So one of the dads, Todd, came over and we started talking and he said, well, you know, if you want to co-lead, I'd be happy to do it with you. So at that time, I'd only been involved in the Cub Scouts for a short time. I really didn't know a whole lot about Cub Scouting and the Boy Scouts before I became a mom and before it was introduced to me. And pretty much I was there to help out in any way that I could and um, to help with supervising and that sort of thing. But I didn't know all of the rules and the bylaws and all of that other stuff that goes with it. I just knew that there was a set of activities and experiences that they needed to accomplish. But I really wanted the boys to be able to continue on. And I thought, okay, sure, why not? I don't want to leave these boys without the experience. So we both figured out what we needed to do to become den leaders. And we just did it. So we worked on getting the boys their pins and their belt loop. Every time that you complete something in Cub Scouts, you get a belt loop for it. And then you have these ceremonies where uh, the belt loops and the accolades and the pins and all that sort of thing are passed out. And it's super exciting for the boys and just kind of inspires them and motivates them to go on to the next step. We would go to museums. We would visit local government offices. We went camping. Oh my God. Okay. So I have, (laughs) I have some crazy experiences. So the thing with Cub Scouting is that it is a kind of exclusive organization like sports, like cheerleading. You see all of these different films coming out on how crazy and competitive the parents in cheerleading can get, how crazy and competitive the parents in, and it's always the parents, in sports, any kind of sports can get. And it's no different in Cub Scouting, unfortunately. And I'm sure that the same applies for Girl Scouts and any other organization where it is in many ways closed off to those who are not part of that organization, no matter how inclusive they claim to be. And so one of the things that happened to me, the the former leader left, and I'm just kind of like, okay, we're going to keep moving forward with this group because we've got 10 boys here 
that was my my whole entire focus was let's get these boys through the last year or two of their cub scouting. And there were two dads who were part of another den. Their boys weren't even part of our den, but it's a pack. So you have your pack that is then made up of several different dens. And the school, I think, had maybe three dens because you want the dens to stay small. There's only so many kids that you can have in there and teach them effectively and, you know, manage them effectively because it's really a lot of energy at that age and they're just kind of going bananas. I mean, all of them want to learn how to shoot arrows and how to play football and how to catch a fish and just, you know, whittle and do all of this stuff that requires them to sit down for at least 20 minutes, 30 minutes to get an understanding of the activity that they're about to do and also to make sure that they're doing it safely and that they're doing it correctly so that they actually have a a useful skill. The groups had splintered off because there was a bigger number of boys than could be sustained in one of the dens. I ended up in this other den with boys who were, they were the younger boys of the group and they were totally adorable and all of them learned how to do really cool stuff and they had great parents. And um, this other group, because they had the older, more mature boys started to get this complex that they were much more important. And I just didn't really care. That's just me. I have always been like that. Like, I don't care. I'm part of this group, going to do what I need to do for them. If we need to come together, we come together. If we don't, that's fine. I have no real ego in this because I am not ever going to be a Cub Scout. I'm just here to lead the group as well as I possibly can in the absence of somebody else who had said that they would do it. And I'm going through the book and I realize, oh, they need to visit a government office. So the dad who was den leading with me happened to work for a branch of government. They gave him access to one of the offices in town And he set it all up. And I was like, oh, this is so cool. We're going to do this. And so we start talking because the groups met on the same night in the same place in the same covered patio. We could hear each other. And we started telling the boys, okay, we're going to, we've got an appointment on this day to go visit this particular office to learn about urban planning. And within minutes of, I think that's literally all that we got out. I see one of the dads turn around and look at us. And the second one turns around. And then they start accusing us of keeping their kids out of our activity. And I'm like, wait, whoa, hang on. Do you want to come? <laughs> I mean, like, we'll call the office and make it bigger. I, I didn't know where they were in their Cub Scouting. I didn't know how far advanced they were. I mean, they they all gave us the impression that they were much further than we were and much better than we were the entire time. So I was like, whoa, you know, I'm not trying to be exclusive here. If your boys have not gone through this, I am sure that we can set something up. It wasn't good enough for them. And it just became this giant battle. I have no idea why other than ego, other than you know, there's a lot of things. Um, and I hate to bring political things into the podcast, but 
like I said, it's always the parents and it becomes very politicized. And so there was definitely, in my opinion, a lot of that going on. And, you know, just a lot of, you know, you're not doing this right. You're not doing this the way I would have done it. You're not taking this other thing into account. You're new. You don't know what you're doing. And we're going to fight because we just don't like the way you're doing and we don't care if the boys of your den end up with nothing. We're just going to fight and we're going to be kings of the hills and our boys are going to keep going. So no loss to us. And it just got very ugly. And the next thing I know, there's a letter written to the entire pack about how our den was purposefully excluding everybody else. How we came in, we took over, we didn't know what we were doing, we thought we knew what we were doing, we weren't communicating, just, you know, every single complaint that you could, it was so petty, and not just petty, but wrong. And I was named in there as being this ridiculously arrogant, outrageously ignorant instigator. And... (laughs) I think uh, I'm trying to think if that's the first time something like that happened. And I think I have to say yes. So I, of course, took offense to what was being said. It was completely incorrect. It was fully fabricated. I mean, it just, it was so much nonsense. I can't even tell you guys how frustrating it was to read that and how angry it made me. It made me super angry. So There was a decision to make, right? Whether it was to let it go and allow what was said in that letter to everyone perpetuate or to respond to it in some manner, whether it was to continue to drag everybody into the mud or to respond directly to the originator of the letter, which is what I chose to do. And, you know, again, this was scouting. This was team playing. This was bringing together community for great activities, you know, to build character, to build skills, to build stronger, more independent, capable human beings to contribute to society in a positive way and to lead better lives. And so that was really my goal. Let's bring, let's bring it back around to that. And also, let's take the bullshit out of this. Neither one of these dads would answer their phones. I emailed them. They wouldn't respond to emails. And so one day, I'd been calling this person. And of course, he had been seeing my phone number identified on his phone. So I picked up another phone. And I called 30 seconds after my last call. And he picked up. And I don't want to put this person's real name out there. So I'm going to leave it out. But I said... Oh, hi, it's Syl. How are you? And there was this long pause. And I said, well, you know, did I catch you at a bad time? And he goes, well, I'm eating my cereal right now. And I go, oh, okay, well, since you're having breakfast, I'm so sorry that I interrupted your cereal eating. Why don't you call me back as soon as you're done? Because I have some things I'd like to talk to you about. And all of a sudden, he said, no, he could set his cereal aside. So we had a really long conversation in which I let him know in no uncertain terms that 
This was all fabricated. This was ridiculous. I don't even know where the problem came from, except that it did come from him and the other parent, and that we needed to figure out a way to resolve it because these boys deserved it. Um, to his credit, we had a good conversation. There was never an official apology. There was never a rescinding of that incendiary letter that went out. But I made an appointment for both of the dens. I think it was only two dens. I made an appointment for both of the dens to go to this event. Government officials who were there were very gracious. The boys had a lot of questions. They were talked to as though they were adult members of society. So it was, it ended up being a really good experience. And I was glad that both groups of boys were able to go. And, you know, after that, things were like super cool. Every time that they did something, they invited us. Every time we did something, we invited them. I mean, we were now a community. And I know sometimes things have these really rough starts to them. I love it when they can be resolved. So it turned into a good thing. Um, at one point, we had to, um, we had to teach the boys how to fish and we had to teach them survival skills, which again, I do not know how fire was not one of them. And maybe, you know, maybe they got taught fire during this time. It, there was an event that just kind of cast such a big shadow on that camping experience. I don't recall exactly everything that happened. I do know that there was one of the dads in my den had like a timeshare at a private campground with a brook that ran through it. And so he generously made arrangements for the entire pack to go up there, got a whole area where we could all camp together there were a lot of different activities that were available there, and the brook was stocked with trout. So the kids got to catch a fish. It was probably the first time any of them had ever caught a fish because there were just so many in brook that there was no way that wasn't going to happen. And we all had fresh caught trout like an hour out of the brook for dinner that night. And it was fabulous. Of course, the boys had to cut off the heads and the tails and gut it, which was really disgusting to all of them. And God knows if they ever went out to become fishermen after that. But the upside is that you put some butter, you put some garlic in there, you wrap it in foil, stick it on a stick and grill it. And it is so delicious that you forget about the gross parts and you're ready to go back out and fish again. So there was a lot of fun with that. And we got to bring siblings with us. And of course, all the parents showed up. And then one of those dads, the, the other dad, not the one that I ended up having the conversation with, but the other one decided that they were going to bring a bunch of alcohol with them to a Cub Scout event. And so they proceeded to have a lot of alcohol. And he got very very inebriated um, to the point where the fire over on his side was going up so high, I thought it was going to burn some branches. So that was a concern for everybody. But then he became very angry. And what precipitated that was that there was a group of 
younger people, like in their late teens, early 20s, who showed up and they got a spot close to us and they were playing music and it was it was more punky and it wasn't what he wanted to hear. And it really, you know, when I go camping, I don't want to hear any music either. But he got into a fight with one of the kids and he punched him in the face and the kid fell down, almost got burned in the fire. Everybody's ushering Cub Scouts into their tents. And this kid and some of the people that he was with end up going to the ranger station, talk to the ranger. The ranger comes out and has a conversation with this dad who then punches the ranger in the face, slams him against a tree and punches the ranger in the face. That is... I mean, twice assault, but you definitely do not want to be punching any government officials. This was a big deal. So the ranger marches back to his office with a promise that this dad's ass was going to be in jail immediately. And the dad, the poor dad, who graciously had given us his time on this property had vouched for us, had all of these plans to have a really nice Cub Scout event that would be memorable for all of the great reasons that you imagine something like this would be, had to march over to the ranger's office, explain who he was, and advocate practically on his knees for the ranger to not call the cops. And he just prevailed on the ranger's sense of empathy towards these boys who were just there on a cub scouting trip to learn new skills and to make good memories. And they'd already seen a lot with the fighting and the drunkenness and, you know, trees coming close to being on fire. And he asked them, please do not add police to the mix. Don't let them see one of the parents getting arrested and the chaos that comes with that. Um, he did a great job. He did a fantastic job. When he came back to the camp, he told the dad and his wife who was there to pack up because when he had walked into that ranger's office, the ranger was on the phone giving an exact perfect description of the dad to the police. The ranger actually told the police to hold off 30 minutes, and they were going to clear this dad out. So he had to pack everything up and leave with his family. But how lucky for him that he didn't get arrested. That could have been a huge deal for him. And the next morning, the boys were a little shaken up, but we had eggs in a nest, I think. You know, they had to do some cooking, and that's where you get put a bunch of butter in a pan and set that over the fire so that it melts. And then you get bread, cut a hole in the middle of it, throw it on top of that butter and throw an egg in the middle. And then you flip it. And everybody just thought that was the greatest thing. So we were able to salvage the weekend, but it was pretty crazy. (laughs) So while I'm on Cub Scouts, I've got to tell you this ridiculous story. Um, There was one year where they were having summer camp. And I was asked if I wanted to be one of the den leaders. And of course, I said yes. 
And in order to be a den leader for the summer camp, you had to prove that you were like an expert level swimmer, like you were ready to go to the Olympics, basically. And that's because there was going to be paddling, it was right along the shoreline, there was going to be swimming. There were a lot of activities, there was archery, leather tooling, we had some Native Americans come in, they did some dances, they taught us some of the things that the Gabrielino Indians, who were the tribes that were local to the area where I live, had done when they were here. There was a lot of history that went on. There was soap carving, just a lot of really good stuff. But in order for me to actually get a bracelet, so they had these three different bracelets. They had like, it was it was like red, white, and blue. And you wanted to get the blue bracelet because red was like, this person's going to drown. Do not let them near the water. And then white was, all right, they can wade in, but they're really like, if they go down, everybody's going down with them. And then blue was, this person can swim. They can go anywhere they want. They are aqua people. So the thing is that when I was growing up, I was on swim teams and high dive teams. I was on water polo teams. I I did all of that in college as well. I wasn't on a competitive water polo team, but I was on just a recreational one. I love swimming. I love anything that has to do with aquatics. Um, like I said, snorkeling, stand up paddling, bodyboarding, all of that kind of stuff. I just love it. I'm a very strong swimmer. But I am not conditioned in the way that I was when I was regularly swimming and going to meets. And I was like the freestyle winner every single time for whatever team I was on. I mean, I just like rocked it. And so I get there and I'm like, I'm getting that blue bracelet. Nobody's going to stop me from getting that blue bracelet because I am the shit when I am in the water. And so it was something like 11 laps. And you had to do five freestyle, four on your back, and then the rest were whatever you wanted to do, whether it was breaststroke or side stroke or doggy paddle, whatever you wanted to do. So I get to the edge of this pool and I pull down my goggles and I fix my swimsuit and I have my toes over the edge and I'm literally thinking, piece of cake. And I get in that position where I'm just going to like leap as far out as I can and just fucking start going for it like I used to when I was swimming a lot. You know, like Simone Manuel is next to me and I'm going to beat her ass. I'm going to be the number one USA Olympic winner on this. And so that's what I did. And I went into that water, just sliced right into it. And I just started going for broke, man. I mean, it was just like I had batteries in me. And I got to the end of that first lap. And I was like, oh, God. Oh, my God. I was sucking air. I was like, holy shit. I, I need to slow down, you know. And so I turn around and I swam back a little bit slower, but an Olympic size swimming pool lap is really far. <laughs> and so I swam back again and each subsequent lap was slower and slower. I was so happy 
to get to my fifth freestyle lap because that meant that I was ready to do the backstroke and both my mouth and my nose would be out of the water and I could breathe and I could do that leisurely and those were going to be my recovery laps. This is just proof of how competitive I am. They didn't even give us a timeline. It was just that, you know, I was going to go in there and I was going to kick ass and everybody was going to go, USA, USA, which is totally not what happened. So I did my laps of that. And then I think I went into side stroke because it's kind of an easy stroke for me. And then I did my last freestyle stroke. So because it was an uneven number of laps, simply because everybody was coming in on one end. So they wanted people who were getting out of the pool to get out on the opposite end and just avoid accidents or whatever. And I had absolutely nothing left. My tank was dried out. I I mean, it had been a long time since I'd swam like that. And I go to hoist myself out of the pool and my peripheral vision starts going dark. Just everything starts shrinking up. And I'm just thinking, holy shit, I am going to faint. It was like looking through a microscope or something. And I'm like, you cannot faint. If you faint, they will not give you the blue bracelet. So... Somehow I powered through it, I get myself up on the deck and I fight flopping on there like a freaking seal because my heart is literally going to pound through my chest walls and I could feel my blood pulsing through my entire body and I can't see. So I slowly walk over and there's there were black balls just kind of bouncing across my vision. And it hurt to take a breath because I had over-exercised my lungs. My chest was killing me. My back was killing me. Everything hurt. I felt weak. And I didn't think I was going to be able to make it back to that table. But I did. I got there and I'm like... (sighs) I did it. I get that blue bracelet. And they're like, yes, you do. And they gave me the blue bracelet. And I still had to wait until they finished writing some stuff down. And I'm like, I am going to faint right here. And they will take this bracelet away from me. So I somehow managed to get through that. And then I nonchalantly, I don't know if anybody noticed, but I was doing everything I could for nobody to notice that I was like, on death's door. I literally was about to die. And somehow I managed to get over to a bench. And I sat there for like 45 full minutes, just sucking air. It was painful. My chest was killing me for like a week after that, but I had the blue bracelet. So then we go to the Cub Scout camp. And the day comes around when we're going to go out in the boats. And I end up with three boys in my rowboat. And they're all like super hyper, like horses at the gate or seahorses at the gate. And I can't get them to calm down. So finally, I we had to sit there for a little while. I get them to calm down a little bit. I'm explaining 
paddling to them so that we can actually get far enough out there that they feel like we're actually rowing and having a good time. And rowing is not something that happens automatically. Like you really have to practice rowing. And I remember doing stand-up paddle boarding with a group and I'm getting spun around like crazy. I'm just like spinning like a top in the middle of the water. And I'm thinking something's going to happen, but I'm going to fall off of this paddle board. And the leader comes over and he's like, hey, Syl, he's like, you're not actually paddling when you're when you think you're paddling you're not really paddling and I'm going what do you mean I'm not paddling and he's explaining this to me and he goes look here's a good visual he goes do you like chocolate cake and I said yes and he goes so when you eat chocolate cake are you just licking the frosting off of the cake or are you actually biting into the cake and I said yeah I'm biting into the cake and he goes right now you're just licking the top you're just licking the frosting off of the water with your paddle. You have to bite the water with your paddle. And the boys in my rowboat were just licking the frosting off of the water. And it was windy. And we started getting blown into some rocks. And I'm trying to paddle us away from these rocks. And they all drop their paddles. One of them stood up and starts waving. And he's like yelling, help, help. And I'm like, sit down, you're going to tip us over. We did end up getting a tow out. And that was my entire experience. And that's what I fought so hard for to get that blue bracelet for. But it was a lot of fun. I had so much fun with those boys. We learned so much. We did soap carving. We learned about pelagic birds. So it was it was a really great summer and one that I'll never forget. But oh my gosh, I never finished my story about grilling. I finally gave up on the ferro rods and any other hack to try to get a fire started. I even had gotten some dryer lint and put some Vaseline in it because Vaseline is combustible and it just didn't work. It just didn't matter. So I went to the hardware store and I got myself a coal chimney, which if you're a cook, looks kind of like a flour sifter and you put all of the coals in there, start them on fire, leave them in there for a little while until they get super hot and then you dump them in your grill and put the grill on top of it and just start cooking. So you are in business. And the cool thing was that there were these boxes of these, uh, they call them tumbleweeds. And it's like very small, very thin strips of wood or wood shavings that have been bundled up and dipped in wax, which is also combustible. And this stuff works like a charm every single time. I mean, I am the grill master now. You put one of those things in the bottom, you put the coals on top, and so you light from the bottom where your little tumbleweed is, and the fire just whoosh, just goes right through all of those coals. Within like five minutes, you're ready to start grilling. It is so damn awesome. I can't even tell you. But there's still like this little voice in the back of my head that's telling me that I'm cheating and that I really need to learn how to do this. Like, this is the easy way out. Um, but I do remember talking to one of my friends and I was telling her, because I've always really challenged myself. I just really have had 
this philosophy. And I think a lot of people have this philosophy that you got to go out there and be a fucking warrior at everything that you do. Like, you just have to conquer, you know, somebody tells me we're doing a 20 mile hike. I'm like, let's go. And I will do it even if my legs feel like they're going to fall off, even if I feel like I'm going to pass out, no matter what, I'm going to be tough and I'm going to grin through it. And I'm just going to be like a total badass about it. Right. Um, and so there was one day where we actually, I, we surprised ourselves. We weren't expecting to do this, but we did like, I don't know, it was like almost a 50 mile bike ride. And there were four of us. So we were doing this bike ride and two of the girls, Cheryl and Karen, rollerbladed those 50 miles. I mean, it was it was almost 50 miles. It wasn't quite, but it was a long ass way to be rollerblading. And Carolyn and I were on our bicycles and I was kind of telling her that I felt like I wasn't doing enough because they were on rollerblades and I was taking the easy way out on the bike. Like I wasn't challenging myself as hard. And Carolyn said that a lot of people have that philosophy of being just the most badass warriors about everything that they do and they make life harder than it really needs to be. And her philosophy was exactly the opposite. If you can take the easier route, if you can find the beautiful path and still make it to the same exact destination, you should. She didn't see the value in suffering through an experience when there was a gentler alternative. And I think I've added some of that to my life. I've added it quite a bit to my life. I have, I'm really in a good place. I'm in in a happy place in my life right now. Um, But I will say that when you take the prettier route, you don't have the same crazy stories to go along with it. Uh, So sometimes I, I just think it just depends on what you're trying to accomplish. And sometimes we just want to challenge ourselves. Sometimes we want to know that our body mechanics are working, that we are capable of climbing that mountain, of running that race, of kayaking across the ocean during a storm and still making it back to shore in one piece. All of those things are such fantastic adventures. And I'm just going to add, I did not kayak through that storm on purpose. It wasn't, (laughs) that wasn't a challenge to me. That was a surprise. And if you missed that episode, it's number 11. And uh, you should listen to it. I hope that you learn to build the fires that fuel you when you take on challenges and those that warm you on the days when the gentle path beckons. Be sure to let me know your tips on building fires and to take the time to share your challenges and your successes as a parent, jumping into the deep end of things and anywhere in your life journey with me. I love hearing from you. So keep sending me your questions and suggestions. And please take a second to rate this episode. Today I went solo, but your rating every time will help move my podcast to the top of the searches so that my friends and I can reach more people. 
I am so excited about the upcoming In the Company of Friends talks and so much more. So be sure to follow me on the socials and the dot com where I post updates, upcoming topics, recipes, and lots more. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the dot com, all at the Queen Trail Podcast. That's T H E Q U A I N T R E L E Podcast. I am Syl Annan the Queen Trail. And until next time, I hope your inner fires burn brightly. And I wish you passion, grace, adventure, elegance, and beauty. Beauty.